are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. My friends, my family in Christ, would you hear the word of the Lord? Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Well, we're continuing today with Jesus as he's, he's teaching the worn out, the broken, the tired, and the marginalized on the hillside. I wonder if that describes anyone in here today. Feeling worn out, tired, marginalized. And he's talking to them. He's telling them to not be like these play actors, what we commonly call hypocrites. These hypocrites who love doing one thing, acting one way, but on the inside, they're totally different. This is not to be like, not to be like these play actors who are the irreligious, the irreligious pagans. And don't be like the religious Pharisees. I don't want you play acting on the street corners in order to get attention like everybody else. And I don't want you praying so that you get the praise like the religious Pharisees. Instead, as we saw last week, as Pastor Luke taught us, I want you to pray to me. I want your posture to be towards me as a child is towards a father. It's intimate, warm, loving, and needy relationship. He says, pray then like this, our Father. And now, Jesus will continue to teach us to pray in verse 10. He's, he's teaching us a model for prayer, right? This is a model and not a mantra that's to be repeated over and over again like empty phrases like the hypocrites do. And what Jesus will teach us in this verse 10, he'll teach us what to pray, what to desire for the future so that we know how to live today. He'll pray, teach us to pray, to desire things for the future so that we know how to live today. Have you ever wondered, what does God want me to do? Anybody have that question before? Two paths diverge in a road. God, which way should I go? 
How do we know what we are supposed to do today? How do you determine what your life must look like right now? We'll find the answer in this prayer. We'll find that the answer is you have to know what your life will look like in the future in order to know what to do now. In order to know what to do today, you must know what you are aiming for, where you are headed. You must have the pin on the map so you know which route to take. And what Jesus is going to teach us to pray today is he's going to say, pray for the fullness of heaven to come in part today. If you're going to take anything away from the sermon, I want it to be that. It's to pray for the fullness of heaven to come in part today. But in order to pray that, we have to know the answer to three questions. First is, what is to come? Second, how it is done? And finally, third, where it happens? So first, what is to come? Second, how it is done And third, where it happens. So if you're all ready to dive in, keep those Bibles open to Matthew chapter 6, verses 10. First point, what is to come? Would you read with me? As as review, we read, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We looked at that last week. But Then he prays, your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Did you notice in this communal prayer who is at the center of this prayer? It's not me, it's not we, it's He. Jesus says, Your name, your kingdom, your will. This is not an anthropomorphic prayer. That is a man-centered prayer. This is a theocentric prayer, a God-centered prayer. The first thing that Jesus teaches us about prayer is that it's not about us. Can you say it's not about me? This prayer is not about us. See, even when we ask for the establishment of God's kingdom, his government, his reign, his rule, he's not even saying, pray that you would bring the kingdom for God. No, he says, your God, your kingdom come by you and for your holy name. It's all about him. And even when we get to the second half of the prayer that is a little bit about us, who is at the center of it? God. It's God who provides our daily bread. It's God who forgives us. It's God who allows us to flee from temptation. It's God who delivers us from evil. God is the object. He is the verb, the doer, and the subject of all these prayers. It's God's name, God's kingdom, God's will, not yours, not mine. And not ours. For the irreligious, Roman, and Caesar, and Herod, who was at the center of their universe? They were. 
And even for the religious, this is what the tired, worn-out crowd would be used to seeing when they watched the religious pray. The Pharisees and the scribes, who was at the center of their prayer? What did we learn not too long ago? They prayed on the street corner, so who would get praised? They would. It was all centered on them, their tiny little names, their own petty little empires, and their puny, silly, little wills. See, what Jesus is doing, he's giving us a trellis. Any of you garden or grow flowers? None. Okay, so this illustration won't work all too well. He's giving us a trellis to grow. What is a trellis used for? It's to grow a vine. He's providing us a trellis to grow the vine of prayer. He's, and in another way, he's providing the scaffolding to build our prayers. I wonder, I wonder if I were to listen to your prayers, or if you were to listen into mine, what would I hear? What would you hear? Does the scaffolding and the trellis hold up your name, your empire, your will? Or is it the kingdom that is to come? This is the threefold pattern that must be on our lips, church. God's kingdom. God's name, God's will. We pray for his, not our kingdom to come. Now, what is the kingdom of God? If I were to describe it in a nutshell, it's God's reign and rule in heaven and on earth. It's where what God wants done gets done. It's his throne. And when we pray, your kingdom to come, we pray, I want you to rule, not me. I want you to have the throne in my life, not others. You see, to pray like this is praying that we are tired of the wicked kingdoms that are around us, like Israel was struggling with with the Roman Empire. To pray like this is to be worn out from the life-draining traditions of the religious Pharisees. You see, to pray God's kingdom to come is to pray for this heavenly reality, God's perfect justice, his loving kindness, his unity as Father, Son, and Spirit, and his wholehearted authority. It would not only rule in heaven, but where? On earth. It would break into all of humanity. See, this concept of kingdom, we're, we're not all that familiar with it because we're Americans, right? How was America started? It's because they hated the queen. They hated the throne. We hate any idea of kingdom. But kingdom has been a reality ever since the beginning. Because God is king. He created us, me and you, our first parents, Adam and Eve, to be his ambassadors, to be his image bearers. But instead of submitting to his will, they submitted to a creaturely will. They became their own kings. They became their own queens. 
And ever since that moment, there's been this tension of two masters, this tension of two kings. Have you ever tried to see a nation rule with two kings? It doesn't end up with one vision. It ends up with two, which leads to division. And this is what it's been like ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, decided not to follow the king's will. Even we see in Israel's history, what do they ask for? They no longer want to worship God as king, but they say, give us a king like all the other nations. And every human king has failed along the way until one day the true and better king, Christ Jesus, shows up on the scene, the promised Davidic king from the line of David. He has broken into humanity, and right before he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, we read this in Matthew 4, 17. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is he saying? I am the embodiment of the kingdom because the king is here. The king has returned to set all wrongs right. And Jesus has come to the earth to defeat everything that has committed high treason on him. Jesus has shown up in the flesh to defeat everything that has rebelled against his throne. He's come to displace all the lesser kingdoms that he knew would eventually kill us. And how did this king displace all the lesser kingdoms? By letting those evil kingdoms kill him. Our king is unlike any other king. Jesus is unlike any other ruler who sits on a throne because Jesus doesn't come to shame his enemies nor to get rid of his enemies. Jesus the king comes to die and forgive his enemies at the expense of his own life. He is the king who makes enemies brand new citizens in his kingdom, not by what they do, but what he has done. This king has come to destroy the problem without destroying me and you. And you know what that problem is? Our own self-interested kingdoms. Me and you. Our own self-interested agendas. Our own self-interested wills. And so to pray for God's kingdom to come, it's not that just he would just rule over heaven. It's not just that he would rule over humanity when we want him to, but that he would take up residence and sit on the throne in our hearts. Because Jesus isn't interested in just your behavior modification. He's interested in heart transformation. And to do that, he has to establish his kingdom right here. He wants to transform us from the inside out. And because Jesus has resurrected from the dead, he has rule over all of life. He'll one day return to bring the fullness of the kingdom. He'll come back to make all things new. But until then, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are waiting for that fullness of that reality. But we're also saying we want to play a part in it now. And in order for to do that, Jesus has to rule our heart. So what is coming? What has come? The king, Jesus. 
But how is this done? How is this done? Look with me again for a second point in Matthew verse 10. Jesus prays, teaches us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done. So in order that his kingdom would come down from heaven into human history, transforming our hearts, how would this happen? For God's will to be done, it has to be heralded. It has to be preached. It has to be taught. For God's will to be done is to live the words and the ways of Jesus. Can you say the words and the ways of Jesus? This is God's will. That we would look more like Christ. And praying this prayer, you know what this does? It unifies the church. Because it's not each one of our individual own agendas. Praying this prayer, your will would be done. It keeps us focused on God's will for the church, not on each individual will. Praying this prayer keeps us from backbiting. Praying this prayer keeps us from jockeying for position. Praying this prayer keeps us from longing for our own agendas and political agendas to rule. But it's praying for God's agenda, God's will to be done. It unifies us. Now, most of the time when I speak to folks about the will of God, I get questions or phrases like, yeah, what, what is the will of God? I would love to know the will of God for my life. We almost treat the will of God like it's, um, what were those things called? The magic eight ball. You all remember the magic eight balls? God, do you want me to get a kitten? Probably not. God, should I forgive the person who just shamed me in public? Yes. Yes. Never. Yep, there's the will. This is how we treat God's will at times, like it's this mystery, this hidden treasure that we do not have a map to. But what is the will of God? To start, we have to understand that the will of God is singular. The will of God is singular, but it exists in two parts. It exists as his revealed will and then his secret will. Let's talk about the difference between the two. When we pray for God's hidden and secret will, those are things like, will I ever get married? Will I ever have kids? Will I always be in this job? When will I die and leave this earth? There's only one way that you will ever find out the hidden will of God. Do you want to know how you find out? When it happens. That's how you know that the hidden will of God has come about. You watch it play out. It's not for us to know the future. It's for us to trust the God who has already has our future planned and set and that he will not, it's his will not to lose any one of us. However, don't we exist? Don't our prayers sound like the most important thing is to find out God's hidden will? See, his hidden will, if you can imagine, one small circle is God's hidden will. And then the large circle is his revealed will. 
All of God's hidden will exists in his revealed will. That Romans 12, where Paul says it's his perfect will, it's pleasing, and it's good. God, in a very large sense, has already revealed his will to us. And do you know what it is? It's his word. It's his word. Listen to what the reformer from the 15th century says. Martin Luther says, if you want to know the will of God and find it, you must not seek for it on the basis of your own ideas. You must hear his word as the foundation and cornerstone. You and see where he directs you and how, I love this next phrase, he interprets it. Do you see what Luther is saying? To pray for God's will to be done is to pray for power to live his already revealed will in our lives. And how has he revealed his will? He's spoken it to us in his word. But how often do you find yourself praying for God's hidden will his future hidden will, while walking contrary to his revealed will. Do you know what that prayer orbits around? I want to know what my plan is for my future. Who does that prayer orbit around? Me, myself, and I. If you want to discover God's hidden will for your life, you will be slow to find it if we do not pray that we would follow his already revealed will. Did you hear that? If you want to find God's hidden will for your life, you will be slow to find it if you do not pray for the power to live out his already revealed will. Think of that large circle again. What does his revealed will already say to us? Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Bear with one another. Do not forsake the gathering. Be one as the Father and Jesus are one. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. This is his revealed will for our lives. And God's hidden will for your life will always exist inside of it. Meaning God's hidden will for your life will never exist outside of God's revealed will. Do you hear me? How do, how do we know this? Look what Paul writes again to a church in Thessalonica. He says, for you know. He doesn't say for you have to figure it out. For it is a mystery. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Next slide. For this is the will of God. Say that with me. Your sanctification. The will for your life 
has already been revealed. It's your sanctification. What is our sanctification? To look more and more like Jesus, that the way of our life would match the way of Jesus, that the words of our life would match the words of Jesus. Is this the Christ-centered, kingdom-come, hallowed-name prayer that you pray for the will of your life? See, most of us, we treat our Father in heaven. We pray to our Father in heaven like a genie. You all seen the movie Aladdin? Some of you kids that are in here. All you kids see the movie Aladdin? Yeah, well, what did the genie exist for? What does a genie exist for? He exists for the agenda of his master. And isn't this how we pray to God sometimes? That his will needs to fit into our will like we are his master. This prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray teaches us that we are not our own, that we were bought with a price, that our life is not our own, that he is the master and that we are bound to him. He sets the agenda he sets the will, not we. And it's good news that God isn't a, a genie, but instead he's a father. He's our father. He knows what's best for us even when we ask what is contrary to his will. Tim Keller, he puts it this way in his book on prayer. He says, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer I want to let this sink in. God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. What do we already know? We already know his revealed will. Are we asking for it? Are we asking for it? The way you get the power to live out this will is to pray your need for help in carrying out his will. We know that we can carry it out in part, but we cannot carry out the fullness of it because we don't have the power to. So we pray, cause your will to be done. Motivate your will to be done. We know what is to come. It's his kingdom. We know how it is done. It's by his will. And now we will see where it happens. Can you read this last section of verse 10 with me? On earth as it is in heaven. I don't know if you noticed this, but this is a future-oriented prayer. This has our gaze fixed on the horizon so that we know how to live today. To pray God's kingdom come and his will on earth be done is to say my chief desire, my singular focus is to see the certainty of this will play out here on earth in part today. You know what we call this in, in theology language? We call this the already but not yet aspects of the kingdom. The already but not yet aspects of the kingdom. We know that we already have the kingdom here present within us. 
have God's spirit alive within us, but not fully yet. We know that Jesus has come to conquer sin, Satan, and death, but not in its fullness. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are praying for the fullness of it. To make, for God to make all sad things come untrue, to right all wrongs, and to make all things new. But until that day, until that day, we are saying, as it will be on heaven, let it also be here on the earth. If this is what the future is going to look like, help us to live like it today. And notice, Jesus doesn't say, as in my life, as it is in heaven. He doesn't even say, in the church's life, as it is in heaven. That'd be too small of a prayer for our God. It's on earth. Because this prayer is a worldwide prayer for a heavenly-oriented mission. That since the beginning of the time, before sin came into the world, heaven and earth were united. They were one. And because of the fall, heaven and earth has been separated and we are now praying for the fullness of this kingdom to come across the globe, not just in our petty little neighborhoods and little empires. Because if you haven't figured this out yet, spoiler alert here, the earth is not as it should be. The earth is not as it should be. To pray for heaven to come down to earth is a prayer of dissatisfaction with the way we see life going on earth. It's a prayer of dissatisfaction for the way that we are living and treating each other. It's a prayer for a realignment, a new allegiance to the king of heaven because we have been so tempted to give our allegiance to others and even to our own will. And it's a prayer that the gospel would go out, not just in our neighborhood, not just in our nations, but to the nations. Amen? On earth, not just here, not just there, but everywhere. But the reason why our world is not as it should be, it's because everybody has a different idea of what we should be aiming for. Your neighbors have a different idea than you. Your coworkers do. And when you hear about all their ideas of, of what they ought to live for in the future, how the future should dictate their lives today, they all have one commonality. If you were to hear the culture's prayer for this, their will to be done would be this. If you want to live the good life, then do whatever makes you happy so long as it doesn't hurt someone else. That is the world's will. Do whatever makes you happy, so as long as you don't hurt anybody else. Now that is a noble and novel thing to believe, believe in, but it's far too simplistic, and it never works. Why? Because nobody can agree on what happiness is. Nobody can agree on what actually hurts and what's worthy of being offended over. 
But that statement also doesn't work for a deeper reality. It's still centered on me. So long as I am happy, so long as you don't hurt me, it's me-centered. What lies at the root of that statement in most of our prayers, church, it's rooted in self-preservation and not sacrificial service towards others and love for God. What about me? What about my happiness? What about my comfort? What about my pleasures? See, when we pray prayers like that, or we hear our neighbors talk like that, what they're trying to do is they're trying to attempt to create heaven out of earth. They're praying, as it is on earth, so let it be in my future heaven. It's the reverse of this prayer. I mean, don't we pray for earthly things to only fill what the king of kings can fulfill? Don't we pray temporary-oriented prayers with the hopes it will fulfill only what eternity can? Let me ask you, when God does give you those temporary things that you thought will make you happy, that you thought will take away all of your discomfort, be it a job, a relationship, an object of your affection, How long did that happiness last? How long did it distill all your discomforts? Maybe minutes. Maybe seconds. C.S. Lewis talks about these desires that we have for things on the earth. He says this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And what he says is, don't throw away the gifts of this world. Stop expecting the gifts to be God. Stop expecting these gifts to be your God. That if none of your earthly pleasures can satisfy this longing, it does not prove that the universe is a fraud. It just proves that something is amiss. It proves that something is wrong. It proves that the earth and we were made for something grander, but we have treated created things, and we've even used created things to advance our own agenda, empires, and names, haven't we? Let me ask you. What are you praying to happen right now that won't be a heavenly reality in the future? What are you praying to happen right now that won't be a heavenly reality in the future? Whatever you're praying for, you're reversing Jesus' prayer. You're saying, in heaven as it is on earth. I mean, don't we let what is temporary dictate our future? Instead of letting our future reality dictate now? We make all of our prayers about us 
instead about Jesus. Let me rephrase that. I, I make most of my prayers about me, about my comfort, about my happiness, more than I make it about Jesus. I wonder if there's anyone in here who's in the same boat I am. So how do we change? John O. in his book on prayer, he says that Jesus is teaching us to pray this way, not because he needs help doing these things. He doesn't need help hallowing God's name. He doesn't need help bringing God's kingdom. He doesn't need help carrying out God's will. Jesus isn't teaching us to pray these things because he needs help doing these things. It's because he knows we need help desiring these things, don't we? It's because our agenda conflicts with God's agenda, and our affections conflicts with Jesus's affections, and it's our affections and our desires, are they not, what ultimately shape our agenda, especially in our prayers. So how do we change? How do we change? It's the first see that before this prayer is ever about us, it's first about Jesus. That we aren't at the center of prayer. Jesus is. That Jesus is the name of God. What does Jesus mean? God saves. Hallow his name. That Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom in the flesh, in the word, and in deed. And it's to see how Jesus carries out God's will through his prayers. Do you ever notice how disinterested Jesus is in himself? Do you ever notice how not interested Jesus is in his own well-being, even in his prayer life? How God-focused he is, how servant-oriented he is towards others. See, Jesus knew that to love others best, he must love God most. And this is what we see him doing. He's praying for me and you, his disciples, in John chapter 17, the night before he died. And then he's petitioning God in the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. And finally, when he died, you know what he was doing when he was dying? Praying. Praying for God's will to be done. Because Jesus never said, what about me? Jesus never said, what about my happiness? What about my comfort? What about my safety? What about my preservation? Even though he had every opportunity to. And when he was in the desert, Jesus was tempted by Satan. Satan tells me, I've had this whole universe given to me. And if you bow down and worship me, I will give you everything. It's yours. But Jesus says, you shall worship God and God alone, even if that meant that Jesus would take on all the world's hurt, all the world's pain, and all the world's sin in all the words, shame, even on the night that he was betrayed in the garden. He says, Father, is there any other way? Is there any way that you can remove this cup of suffering from me? What is he asking? He is asking for a painless, safer way to carry out our salvation. 
But Jesus knew that in order to save us, he must suffer for us. And he surrendered. He says, not my will, your will be done. And he did it, not because it would make him happy. He did it for the joy that was set before him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he followed the Father's will, even to death, death on a cross. And for the joy set before him, he despised the shame that we have brought on ourselves when we make every little thing and every little prayer about us. For joy. You see, what was the lie of the first garden of Eden to our first parents, Adam and Eve? What was the lie of the garden? That if you follow God's will, you won't be happy. And this prayer in this second garden is warfare against that lie. That when Jesus followed God's will in that second garden as the second Adam, the true and better Adam, it's proof positive that when you follow God's will, even as you suffer, you won't just be happy. You'll have joy Eternal joy because our joy is found in the presence of God as we serve the benefit of others. And this is what Jesus has done for us. And when you pray, pray for this, you realize that the future, Jesus saw the future before him, that his inheritance included the inheritance of all nations. People who were once his enemies are now his friends. People who once rebelled against him are now citizens in his kingdom. Because this king, like we said before, did not come to kill his enemies, but to die for his enemies so they could be brand new citizens, sons and daughters of the king. And church, when you pray for God's will to be done, God hears you not on how good you are, not on how well you pray, but on the basis of how good Jesus is, on the basis of how he carried out God's will on our behalf. Because could any of us do it? Anybody can live God's will perfectly in this room? No, but Christ has. And that's why we have access to be able to pray for the Father. We know that God will answer when we call on his name to bring his kingdom, to hallow his name for his will to be done because on one fateful night, he did not answer Jesus' prayer when he called. And our prayers are given the reception that Jesus has merited because Jesus got the rejection that our prayers merited. Oh, what amazing news. What amazing news that we have this type of access, this type of access to the Father. And so let us be a church. Let us be a church who has prayers that are focused on his name, not our name. His will, not our will, his kingdom, not our kingdom, so that all tribes, tongues, and nations can confess that Christ is Lord. Let our prayers exist outside of us that focuses on the triune unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that our prayers can join together in the glory and hallowing of the Father's name for the coming of the Son's kingdom and the power of the Spirit to live out his will. Could you imagine what our life would look like, what our neighborhoods would look like, what our world would look like 
if we prayed these prayers. So church, let us keep praying for that future reality that is set to come in part today. Amen? Would you join with me in praying? Our Father in heaven, I pray. 